We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Newcastle United podcast. This week we are going to talk about the future. It has been two years since October 2021 and, and rather than look back at a triumphant two years for Newcastle United and new ownership, we thought we'd look at what has happened in those two years and, and what the immediate and distant future looks like for the football club and for football fans and what we've kind of learned in the, this glorious two-year period where the team have surpassed every test thrown at them apart from the Carlin Cup final on the pitch. Uh, oh yeah, I hate Carlin. that competition. <laughs> um, want to win it this year though. And yeah, we just want to talk about really what the big picture looks like on and off the pitch for Newcastle United. So the international break is a perfect time to do that. We're on Patreon. It's between three and eight pounds a month. What is Patreon? Uh, it's basically a podcast platform like this, like the one you're listening to, where you pay three to eight pounds extra per month to get loads more of these podcasts. This week, we will build up to Crystal Palace at home, which is a big game and talk about lots more besides. So there's a link in the description to this um, on whatever you're listening to this through. Click it, join us. There's over a thousand people on there now. We're very grateful to have them and would love you to come along. Sai, I want to start the show not talking about the big picture stuff that I'm just advertising going to to all of the listeners, but I suppose for part one, <laughs> I'm just really interested in the last two years, how was, uh, you, not just your side, but everyone around the table with me, how has your relationship with Newcastle United changed since post-takeover, if indeed it has? I wanted to give a, um, a, a very Eddie Howe answer to this and say not, not, not hugely, like every game is still a Newcastle game and you look forward to the next one. So to, to, to an extent... I can answer that honestly and say not that much. I still go to Newcastle games every week. I talk about football with my friends. I come and do podcasts with you lads, just like we did before, you know, uh, before the takeover. It's just, it, it feels different is, is probably the, the main thing. And uh, when when you just mentioned there, we got to a cup final. We've been in, in the Champions League this season. Like they're, they're two things that probably don't appreciate. Like I got to go to Wembley in, in February and that's something I always thought this club was capable of, same with the Champions League, to be fair, and, and you always had that hope, but that hope was dwindling massively towards the end of the Ashley years, and we really started to think it's never going to happen for us, we're probably going to go the opposite way. Um, hence, we started to pull together and try to raise money to buy the club as a, as a <laughs> fan base. That's how bad it got. But yeah, in terms of my day-to-day relationship with the club, I think I, it, my, my love for, for football has come back. Um, I, I certainly can be honest and say that I'd stopped enjoying it. Going to the match became a little bit of a chore. I still did it because it's still a big enough part of my life that I wanted to do it. But now I can do it with just pure joy. Uh, you know, I look forward to every game. Um, we're, we're living it right now. We're in an international break and I've never been so bored over the weekend without a Newcastle game. Whereas years ago, it was kind of almost a bit of a relief to have a weekend without a Newcastle game. So it's, 
that's changed for me. But in terms of my day-to-day uh, enjoyment of Newcastle, it's just kind of, it's kind of, we, we carry on. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the listeners could tell that it was becoming a chore for you and that you were feeling <laughs> super positive. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I think for me, it's, um, it's just it's, like, I just feel so um, seeing what the city is like. And I know we're going to talk about that a bit more, but like seeing Newcastle strips everywhere, little kids in Newcastle strips, people go into the shop in their Newcastle tops. You just didn't see that two years ago, two and a half years ago. And then the 10 years preceding that, like people were almost embarrassed to be Newcastle fans and um, and did not advertise that like out and about. And now everybody just seems so there is a a mood change. There's certainly a mood change in me. It's enjoyable to talk about. There's so much to talk about, like this podcast today. We're not saying we're going to talk about the future of the club and what that might look like. There was none under Mike Ashley there wasn't there wasn't that we couldn't talk about the infrastructure because there wasn't an infrastructure we couldn't talk about what the future plans might be because there certainly weren't any apart from ticking along or staying in 17th and that's a really exciting thing for me I think it's really I, I like to I like to learn and I like to sort of think about things in the bigger picture and and we weren't able to do that with our club so it's a new way of engaging with Newcastle that I didn't have before and I'm really enjoying I think um my uh sort of Moral situation was a, a little bit different in terms of when it first started. I wanted to make sure that um, I still held the view that Newcastle United was something different, something very, very different from the original um, kind of club that had been under Ashley. Um, and the football team has uh, exploded, I suppose, past any expectations, kind of like 1992, 1993 style, mm. where it went from, oh, we might go out of business, to, oh, look at that, we might be playing the Premier League. Next <laughs> year. Um, and now it's gone from, oh, we might get relegated to, we're playing in the Champions League and we're beating one of the best teams in Europe, 4-1 at home, um, or supposedly one of the best teams in Europe. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, in reality, probably where I'm at is, the, the on-field football team that we support, and Eddie Howe has done an unbelievable job to get the whole city and to get everybody involved in the fan base back on board. Um, They had a lot of goodwill because of the way they came in and the celebrations, obviously, when the takeover happened. Um, But they've not, in my opinion, they've not really put a misstep on the pitch. Um, Mm. I I remember walking out of Watford when Joe Pedro scored with his shoulder and being like, oh, God, that's it, we're down. Um, It doesn't matter. We're going to be the richest club in the world, but we're going to be in the championship. Um, And the fact that they stayed up from that and John Joe Shelby, like, scored against Leeds and then the, the ripple effect from that has been absolutely massive. Yes, uh, the Carabao Cup final was a disappointment, but I suppose if you'd come around all of us and said 14 months previously, right, you're going to go to Wembley and you're going to get beaten 2 0 by Man United in a final, we'd have been like laughing and go, hi, right, yeah, of course we are. <laughs> um, and if you told us then 14 months later, we'd be sitting here talking about, like, oh, it'd be brilliant if we could be in the last day of the Champions League or whatever. Like, again, it's, it's the situation we're in. Um, there weren't podcasts in 1993, um, but I imagine <laughs> podcasts in 1993 probably would have had the same conversations going on in them. Like Kevin Keegan's come in, completely transformed the club, etc. Well, for that, read Eddie Howe. Um, and also, and probably my biggest takeaway from it is the fan base is all back on side. Everyone's on message. There isn't a there isn't a feeling ever in the crowd of groans or moans and stuff. Even when we've been getting draws and defeats, everybody stayed on message. And I think that's a massive thing that probably has overwhelmed me a little bit at times, and um, I think that's the best thing that's come out of the takeover. All interesting points, thank you. I suppose I thought you'd, you'd, someone would go a little bit more personal, but I'm happy with that person. My my life has been transformed because 
I'm flying to Dusseldorf in a week yeah. and a half. Mm. We're, we're flew in and out of Milan. The, the, this kind of stuff has ripple and knock-on effects in the rest of your life, family, jobs, and it, it's all. Don't get me wrong; it's not a complaint. It's just, it's just a trans. It's been a transformational time to be a fan because us doing this made us uh, makes our experiences atypical because we did this podcast stuff. Yeah. So Newcastle United was a huge part of our life for that reason, in terms of the time mm. and effort that went into this, and that's obviously still the case tenfold. But just purely in terms of Newcastle United being a, not just the centre of my life, but the centre of pretty much most people I know's life, it now instructs everything we do. Like, yeah. plans are made around football matches again. Previously, you just, all right, um, it's someone stag do, or should we go out for a day out with the lads in York? Should we, should we do that um, next weekend? All right, it's Palace at home next weekend. Because fuck, I'd like literally yeah. be happy to miss it. I wouldn't be able to sell my ticket to anyone. You're not allowed to sell it. Anymore. Not that you would do that. Yeah, but, um, you were never allowed to do that. It's not yeah. anymore. But 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 today it's just I'm not missing Palace at home. Like yeah. I'm literally, yeah. my life counts down to Palace at home. Like everything about next weekend will revolve, revolve around Palace at home, and it's Crystal Palace who are still shit, by the way. Um, and the game will likely be nil nil if, if if Crystal Palace have got anything to do with it, or one nil either way. Um, that that in itself is tr- is transformative. And so I touch on one of your points for later in the show about how home games now, you know, the city is absolutely is transformed. You now have to think more about what time you're going to get to the pub beforehand, where you're going to go post game, because the likelihood is everything's going to be rammed, which is great, and it just feels like there's a real civic relationship between the football club and the fan base again where the football club is now to many many people anyway the city and beyond it's actually the region whereas before it was this kind of entity that used to be that and we all knew it could be that again but almost willfully and deliberately chose not to be that because skeleton staff running a a football club that charlotte very uh, said very well was was almost aiming to be in the background 17th you know ticking along all that kind of stuff well that's not going to actually create any pride in anything mm. whereas now and it's not just beating, beating psg for one it's all of the other stuff but beating psg for one is always going to be probably for a long time yet unless we top that this season with some sort of mad brilliant result in that competition of the premier league ultimately Newcastle fans are now obsessed again by the football club. That's the easiest way I can say it. And that's the biggest change. Just the attention, the eyeballs, the interest and the pride. And you have to win a lot of football matches. That's the ultimate thing, you know, for everything else that the club has done right. And some things wrong, which we're going to talk about in this podcast. If you win lots of football matches, people will be interested again. And they're interested. And right now, I don't think there's a Premier League club where it's harder to get a a ticket to watch a match against Crystal Palace at home than Newcastle United and that's the biggest change I think um, you said uh, none of us answered as personally as you have just done there I think the reason being is that I feel exactly the same way I just didn't want to put to record in case family and friends <laughs> who might be listening realise how little uh, how much of my life <laughs> I plan around this football club and, and how many uh, other life events get, get kind of play second fiddle but it is the case you're right um, I can remember two years ago uh, you know my, my partner would ask me do you want to go to go away to Barcelona, go away on like a trip somewhere. And now I would immediately look at the fixture list and yeah. say, right, can't do that, we can can't. Whereas then I was like, yeah, just, just, just pick a day and we'll do it. Like you just didn't even think about it. I was like, if there's a Newcastle game, it doesn't matter. Whereas now I would genuinely be like, what are you booked it then for? There's a tune game? Like yeah. you can't, we can't go then. <laughs> so it, it is a massive change in that respect. That is true. We also like, it, 
with regards to making content like it can't be sort of skimmed over that we also sit and talk about the games so it's it's not just going to the games it's also dedicating time to thinking about and then and then speaking on record about um about the games so um to your point si like i had a friend being like oh let's find a weekend for me to come and visit you and i was like there isn't one before christmas <laughs> there, there isn't one before christmas because i have like i have all of these things to do and there are some people who can slot in and like go and do their own thing and there are some people who want to spend the whole weekend i was like if you want the whole weekend you're not getting one like that you i don't have one and i'm happy about it i'm not even like oh man i'm like no, don't come. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose if you want me to build on what I said and like the personal relationship with the club, um, my dad and my uncle used to sit next to me, walked away in 2011. Mm. So I went from being one of three seats, which I'd sat in for donkey's years, next to me, dad and my uncle, and suddenly I was sat on my own with two people who mm. I didn't know. And they, he left because it was old Andy Carroll. Alan Pardew said, Andy Carroll will leave this club after me. Like, whatever, yeah. Pardew, one of Pardew's lies. And, um, <laughs> one of many. Uh, and that, that meant that I was left in this position where I sat by myself. And uh, although more of my mates went to the game, really, we kept going to the game during the Ashley era because it was an excuse to get out of the house and have a few beers on a Saturday afternoon when you've got young kids. Uh, you look for those excuses. Um, and the match was like an afterthought. There was times when we said, actually, she would just stay here. Like, yeah, she, she would was, not mm. bother going in the ground. She would People just stay would here. arrive at like 20 past three, wouldn't they? Like, because remember, we were always on at 3 p.m. on a Saturday because nobody yeah. wanted to watch. Would... Sometimes as an organised protest, we'd be going in 11 minutes past <laughs> yeah, three. Yeah. I mean... Um, I think probably the bit that's changed for me then now is the idea that like my dad's like interested in the football club again. Like, and we can, we can actually have conversations, me and my dad and my brother about like, oh, can you believe that or what, I, or whatever. Um, other people who've not known us for years getting in touch like for games saying like, oh, that looks amazing on the telly. Everything looked brilliant. Like it goes back to what Charlotte said. Kids weren't wearing Newcastle United strips. They were wearing Man City strips with Haaland on the back or they were wearing whatever. And now we've gone to a situation where we've got the vast majority of people are wearing Newcastle strips again. They're not buying a random Liverpool kit or a random Arsenal kit. They're buying Newcastle United yeah. strips. And um, I suppose it's the pride in me is the fact that I can actually talk about my football club without going, oh, please don't talk about that because it'll just make me angry. One, one last point for me. Um, I, I've talked about it a lot. When you go to work on a Monday morning, everyone's talking about the football now, which, which definitely wasn't the case again. But on Thursday, I was on a, a Teams call with a Mackham at work. And, Sorry, and, yeah, no. they got um, the internet now. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he was in the office. Um, <laughs> yeah, so travel, travel north of the river. Um, yeah, he, uh, for years it was like, oh, so you got beat four 0 off Spurs at the weekend. You know, it was, it was easy, even though the Macams were having their own mare down in League One or whatever. It was still like we were pretty poor as well, so yeah. it wasn't that much you could revel in. But it was interesting to see this guy. He was asking like, oh, so we at the the Champions League game. And he was genuinely interested because he was like, bloody hell, like you lads are so lucky. Like he, he was asking me about the match with sincerity. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he was trying to find a way to needle me. He was like, you're just accepting that you're a class now. It's it's, it's really good. And he's, I've never seen a Mac. I'm so humble yeah, about man. the situation. Yeah. I think they've had to, they've almost had to let go of the, the petty stuff and start just appreciating what Newcastle is now and think, you know, that they're probably knowing that their kids are going to grow up Newcastle fans and everything else that comes with it. So, the, the change in the Mackhams for me is one of the biggest, <laughs> one of the biggest changes that we're experiencing. I've did, got a Mackham. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, did you see? Did you ask him how the Middlesbrough result went? Because, like, you know, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a Mackham friend at work, and he is exactly the same. He's quite like he's, he's like gutted that we're doing so well because he's like a proper proper Sunderland fan, but he's also like oh, you can't you can't begrudge you it. Like you're mm. playing really well, and it is really good. And I, I just I'm jealous, but. Such sweet. There's some switch. allegiances being switched as we well. speak. <laughs> yeah, these uh, these people are their, their children will be Newcastle fans. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there for part one. Thanks for your answers. 
couple of adverts coming up. We have a tier in our Patreon platform, which is just £3 a month to get all of these free podcasts that we put out without adverts. Uh, and if you sign up, you'll get this show without those adverts or even me referencing them. So back after these. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Part two of the show. Uh, now we're going to get into the, 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 the heart of the podcast uh, and talk about the future of Newcastle United and where we think it's headed from what we've experienced in the two years gone. I'm going to start first, and I'm super, super interested in the commercial growth of Newcastle United and how on earth the club off the pitch keeps up with the club on the pitch. And I suppose vice versa, it can go both ways. Now, on the pitch, performance is the most important thing, and everyone listening to this will agree with me, I'm sure, but what Newcastle United achieved last season, and to be fair to them so far this season, particularly in the Champions League, um, far outstrips what Eddie Howe and his team should have been able to manage with the resources at their disposal. They have spent a lot of money since the takeover and they've invested off the pitch. And we're gonna, Some of you guys are going to talk about those off the pitch things as well. But on the pitch, we've put a lot of money into the first team and bought some very, very good footballers. And that was necessary to, to, to stay in the league to start with and then to kick on. But there is no way Newcastle United, with its resources, should have finished in fourth place last season ahead of clubs that have finished ahead of... There is no way, really, that they should be able to consistently compete and or better teams um, above them in the league or, or teams around them. And if you look at some of the clubs Newcastle finished above last season, Liverpool, Spurs, Chelsea in particular are the, the three and then should have finished above Man United. That just shouldn't happen. It definitely shouldn't happen two seasons in a row mm. when you look at relative resources and um, lots of things, not just on the pitch, on the field stuff, but off the pitch stuff. So... Moving forwards, the club do not have a bottomless supply of money. You mentioned that, Stephen, richest club in the world. FFP means there is no such thing. There is no such thing, ultimately. The richest club in the world is the one that generates the most income, and that is Manchester City. Currently, they are the richest club in the world. They, they have more income than anyone else. So before I get into this, I just want to make clear to people that the last set of accounts available for fans to look at were for the 21-22 season, when the year of the takeover and the year... That Newcastle finished 11th mm. uh, and then 
you know, part of that year, um, I think it's a, ju- it's a junior round possibly, but 22-23 is the season we finished fourth. But if you look at the results available for all clubs in 21-22, Newcastle had a turnover of 180 million, which I think put them 10th or 11th in the league. To put that into context, Newcastle's turnover and therefore resources available um, was closer to Burnley, who were the lowest income club on 124 million. Newcastle were closer to them than to West Ham United on 255 million. So in terms of pre-takeover, like who can you compete with? Mm. Well, we were closer to Burnley as a club than West Ham in terms of the income that were generated, which is just mental. It's mental. And it's a very Steve Bruce pro yeah. stat, isn't it? When he's, well, you mean, it's ridiculous, by the way, that Newcastle, with the 10th or 11th highest turnover, it would, and it would be spun that Bruce was doing a good job just keeping <laughs> us in the league. But that's parked up for now. We've done it enough <laughs> times. But still, for Newcastle to be miles below... West Ham, Leicester, even Leeds United in the first season back up, or the second season, I forget which one. And uh, Leeds, uh, you know, and Everton, who are a car crash club, being kind of bigger financial entities than Newcastle United, that should should have been a, a source of shame. It wasn't. Um, the things, things will have changed in the last couple of seasons. But what Newcastle United have ultimately got to do now is try and keep up off the pitch with what they're doing on the pitch to make sure that we stay where we are or indeed improve on the pitch because we need the revenue, we need the money. Now this summer we've seen a, a series of what could be transformative partnerships. Um, seller, new front of shirt, Adidas replacing Castore at the end of the season. Castore at the end of the season. Uh, and also, you know, several other kind of smaller smaller deals in the making. The, the club now are going to have a fan zone and all of that kind of stuff. So that, that's great. That's great. It isn't going to get Newcastle United anywhere close, I imagine, to, you know, even Spurs's turnover of 443 million for that for that financial year we are so far behind these clubs and i did i did a bit of research into like i think liverpool arsenal and man city are generally thought to have kind of the best commercial teams in the premier league that's you know objective thing but you know not all of their fans are singing about this on the terraces but in terms of research these clubs because manchester united are the biggest club but they managed to do much of what they do because they're manchester united mm. they're hopeless in nearly every other area on and off the pitch i think um but looking at newcastle united it's like how do we how do we get close to these guys well i think man city except it took them a decade mm-hmm. to get their commercial strategy right and see where they are now it took liverpool according to the people in the know, they're, they're five to six years after their takeover. Newcastle don't have a decade. Mm. They don't have five to six years because they're already at a level they want to stay at, at least, if not do more. So they don't have six years minimum to, 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 to get things right. And, you know, Darren Eels, when he came in, talked about the club being a 130-year-old startup project. This mm. is the phrase that he's, he's used and was picked up on. The, the issue that those guys have got, I think, is the, the, they need to deliver because Eddie, like, how much can you rely on Eddie Howe producing miracle after miracle season after season now? We currently lie top of our Champions League group. We're eighth in the Premier League, but one of the four former teams, if not the former team in the Premier League, going into a, a, a tough run of fixtures eventually, but with, with a lot of points on off at Newcastle United. So I don't think it's inconceivable Newcastle will once again compete where they want to compete for that top four, top five in the Premier League this season. To me, moving forward, it's just it's just going to be really, really interesting on what Newcastle United are actually selling. Because if you are uh, next-gen tyres from South Korea and you have a multi-million pound deal with Manchester City, 
that's great for Man City because I don't know what they get from that deal, but it's a, it's a South Korean tyre company. Um, they just want to sell tyres, and that's great, and they want to be associated with Manchester City's unbelievable success, and they basically are barking into victory. Like, we're the best team in the world. We're the best team in Europe. Come and, come and be associated with dead, dead easy deal to do, I imagine. I'm mm. an expert in this stuff. Newcastle United are different, and Sai, please come in shortly if you want to, because... I feel like at Newcastle United, you are selling something different because as good as we have been and as much as we enjoy it, we are, we are not at the stage yet where Crystal Palace at home on Saturday, it's, it's like unthinkable that we don't win that game. Like there is a not, there is, I think Newcastle will win, but Manchester City play Crystal Palace and Crystal Palace will be like one to eight, one to nine. Like there'll mm. be such long odds to get anything from the game. So you can't, you can't sell, you can't sell guaranteed victory and success and titles, but what you can sell is the, is the journey. And that's, I suppose, to bring it back to my question, is like, what does the immediate future look like commercially? I think is it's so important that Newcastle at least continue to outperform themselves or the, their, um, the resources on the pitch because I imagine the club have to almost try and sell to, to brand partners the chance to be part of that journey. So like, it's a different, you're selling a different thing to Liverpool, to Man City, Man City, what the fuck you sell at Man United? I don't know, <laughs> apart from being part of the brand. It's legacy brand like knowledge, isn't it? Man, Man United did a great job in the nineties of building a brand, and they're still riding the coattails of that. I think they're not. They're not riding the coattails of like consistent brilliance. And Ferguson's still there. Yeah, like, he's yeah. still around the club. Yeah. So the the badge of being attached to the greatest era in their club's history is still there for that for Manchester United. Whereas for Manchester City, it was knocking your neighbours off the pitch, and yeah. they've gone on and on and on and gone above that. So. Yeah, I suppose for Man United, literally buying Scott McTominay, aren't you? Like that's, that's what you're doing. <laughs> but, but for us, it's just going to be so interesting to see, A, how you sell the journey and who you're selling it to, because your point, Stephen, later on is about ticketing and access to St. James's Park, and they want to expand St. James's Park. It's all great, all really positive stuff. That's exactly what the club in the city needs. I, am, I don't have the answers, but I'm just interested to see what happens with bumping the road what yeah. happens with a couple of seasons where it doesn't go right? Not that I think that will happen imminently, but it's football. No, it is. A, it's something we probably have to um, not anticipate, but be prepared for. Is that it could eventually we, we will well, we, not not that we could uh, we will hit a bump in the road eventually. You know, um, we could. We're one Lukaku hundred million pound signing that doesn't go well from you know a, a season going in the wrong direction because it can take one mistake like that. Maguire eighty million. You think that's going to improve your squad, and it doesn't. And then questions are asked. Then the manager gets questioned, and then. That whole cycle starts for a football club. Now I know I, f- I feel like Newcastle seems to understand that, and we will be very patient. And we we've got everything right in the transfer market, and they've got so much faith in the manager and the coach that those ridiculous situations that occur at Chelsea, Man United, where the managers just come and go and, and players come and go, shouldn't happen yet. But there will come a point where, because our squad's so good now, um, albeit there's still plenty of improvement we can make, it's not the same as it was when they first came in, where they're just replacing Chris Wood and John Joe Shelby with anybody. It's now we've got really good footballers and buying better footballers is actually a challenge. It's difficult. You're buying players who might be better, might not. You don't know enough and there's a big financial gamble. Whereas before, Bruno for 35 million sounded like a lot, but it was easy because even if he wasn't as good as he was, he'd still have been an improvement and still would have been worth buying. Whereas now, 70 million to Nali is probably the first example. Where it's like, we're all wondering, is that going to work out? And, and, and I'm sure it will. He's, he's, he's been improving, but each time we spend big sums of money now especially with what you've said Dodds where, where we're not quite at the level commercially with those other teams it's becoming a bigger gamble so at some point what you would describe as a mistake could get made and then I'm interested to see how the club handles that what we do because 
there's no coming back from what Chelsea did to an extent. It'll, it'll take years for them to recover from the, the massive capitulation they've, they've had as a club. And Man United the same, you know, they've been trying to recover from all of these ridiculous financial outweighs uh, for years. And it'll happen to us at some point. We're, we're, you're right, we've somehow, we're in that top six. We are part of that top six and weren't supposed to be this quickly. And we've got the least resources to maintain that. So it is, it's, it's a genuine concern. And you're right, they, they've found answers to everything else. So they might find an answer to this. But I think we as a fan base need to be prepared for the fact that it could take a turn uh, in the wrong direction for a bit before it then continues to grow. Spurs are now going a similar way to Chelsea in that they seem to have, I mean, they've landed on Ange Postacoglu, but apart from that beforehand, they were just like, right, get a big name manager in. That'll solve the problem. Get a big name manager in. Oh, he's not worked. Right, get another big name manager in. That'll work. And um, some of my Spurs friends were saying like, oh, Eddie Howe's going to be under real pressure now, isn't he? Like, this has been such a tough start. I was like, no, (laughs) no, he isn't because we're not you. Um, I think uh, I think probably part of the problem commercially is that uh, Eddie has uh, through his, through his running of the team, like the on pitch team, and the fact that say you're right, we have yet to have what you'd say is a bust. We're yet to have a signing made by anybody in the like Anthony Gordon at the end of last season. People were like, mm, mm. have we made a mistake here? Forty million quid. Like, well, I don't think anyone's saying that now. No. Um, and similarly, if you give if you give Anthony Barnes, if you give Tenali six months of working in this team. Like I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that they will be in exactly the same situation. Isak like came in, flew out the traps, got injured, and then it was what February before we saw the best of him again. So yeah. it, it does happen. The commercial problem is, is that you're right, Alex. We're a Champions League team at the moment, so it's easy to go out. People want to come and wait me because you're a Champions League team. Next season, if the things fall right and we finish fifth, maybe we'll be a Champions League. Or if we finish fourth again, like we'll be a Champions League team again. But if we don't, how do you sell? your Champions League rights or prizes and packages to people when you're in the Europa League and you're playing Thursday, Sunday, um, and you're maybe on the telly a bit less, etc. You know, West Ham did a really good job. They went on and won the Europa Conference League and that's actually worked really, really well for them because they've mm. been able to upsell their, their product and the club off the pitch. And it's terrible as a football fan to have to think about, you know, ooh, what does the balance sheet look like? Um, it, sh- it shouldn't be necessarily be something that we have to worry about, but, but we do because there's a reason why we've gone out and got Seller. There's a reason why Adidas are taken over from Castor. Um, it's because the deals that were in place previously weren't keeping us up with anybody. We were mm. treading water commercially because if it didn't sell flannels and it didn't sell Sports Direct, it wasn't of any use to the owner. Um, and the other issue we've got is, I know you've the statistics you gave before, Alex, we were on a par in 2008 with Spurs mm-hmm. and they have exploded past us. What are they, four times our turnover mm-hmm. now? And we've got to catch up with them because because they've got that turnover and they're brand new stadiums and they've got like uh, American football coming to play there and stuff like that. They are making money from that, which we're not making from it because nobody's coming to play American football. It's in James's Park. The, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things I heard from you all there was just kind of decisions, decisions, decisions. Like every decision, every key decision mm-hmm. has been right. And that getting those key decisions right on the pitch and then making some good decisions off the pitch, everything should be fine. It, it is. It's very hard to keep making insane, brilliant decisions every single season on on players, on partners, on the next manager, whenever that is in future. Hopefully, never. He's here for life. <laughs> but that's that's going to be the hard thing. I think the the one big thing, and people hate this outside Newcastle, right? I think the one thing Newcastle will be able to exploit that others can't is the Saudi connection. And I'm not talking about owner investment into the club through direct funding. I'm talking about that market and I think the the seller partnership when the club talked about it publicly um, and even I think Peter Silverson's podcast talked about it it's more than just 
25 million a season to be on the front of the shirt, it is going to hopefully open doors to us, mm. to a new fan base. And Saudi Arabia, again, is different to the UAE or Manchester City. It's different in terms of love of football. It's different in terms of age of population. It's different in terms of size of population. They're not, they're not comparable. So that is potentially a, a, an advantage Newcastle have, again, not just in terms of direct owner funding, but if you want to do business in Saudi Arabia, for example, Newcastle United become a key partner in that. And, and I don't, this is not my area, I'm, I'm guessing here. But I think that that's going to be a big part of the next five years. It's, it's not just what deals can you do with Saudi companies to try and exploit that market. It's what deals can you do with companies outside of Saudi Arabia who want to get into Saudi Arabia. Um, and and you, you, Newcastle United could possibly be a vehicle for that, whilst also offering the traditional sponsorship measure to any company who wants to work with us and providing you know, the chance to be part of that journey. And also, if you're, it's a bit like Adidas from the, the early 90s. Adidas were part of the rise. Was it 95, 96 their first season? Yeah, 95, 96. So, so you had Newcastle pre-95, 96 with... Asics. Oh, Asics. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was the, the, the real rise. And then 95, 96 was different completely because it was Premier League title, genuine Premier League title challenge, the chance to be the best team in the country win the first league since 1927. We didn't do it. But Adidas became known globally, I think, for, mm. for or certainly within Europe, for being part of that journey and that failure even, but but God, it was beautiful. And they now have a chance to do the same thing. How else can Newcastle sell, hopefully, a similar journey to other partners? That's going to be the bit, the big thing because like you just said before, Newcastle, Newcastle are competing in a space in terms of the, the position you believe in that. They just shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be anywhere near it, particularly on a consistent basis. The big thing, though, to move on to your point, Stephen, is all of this journey stuff, all of this trying to bring in fans in Saudi Arabia and, and more fans to grow the club commercially is it puts pressure on access to Newcastle United for for fans. So my, um, after singing the praises for lots of different things, I'm now going to be a little bit, uh, possibly a little <laughs> bit more cutting. Um, the, uh, when, uh, well, anyone who's there against Paris Saint-Germain, everyone I've spoken to against there, what a night, atmosphere, incredible, etc. And what I've mentioned before is every home game has now become a, an occasion, a bit like you said, si, no, no one wants to miss a home game yeah. anymore. Charles clearing our weekends out just for Saturday, 5 or 30 or whatever. Sorry to my friends. <laughs> but like the, the reality is every home game and every away game has become an occasion where like, we're very rarely not on the telly. Um, we are, you know, we're traveling up and down the country supporting, well, lots of people are traveling up and down the country supporting the, the club. Um, people want to go and watch Newcastle United and we've got a 52,000 seat stadium. There's an issue around how many we have to give to away fans. We can't at the moment apparently extend the East Stand. Um, we've got the fan zone going on the back. So at the moment, supply of tickets is far outstripped by demand. Mm-hmm. Now that does help because the club's grown exponentially quickly. Um, we do have to be careful though that we don't go down the line of what type of supporter ticket do we want to be selling. Um, there are a lot of new corporate areas, which like I get because they have to, because FFP, that's one of the things they can do. I think we talked about it previously that ticket revenue at Liverpool is something like 80 million pounds a year. And it's nothing like that. It's in James's park. So we, like, we have got to look at it. But my concern is, A, how do we make sure that we keep atmospheres where we've got match going supporters going to games, not people who are constantly like, a bit like Man City, yeah, tourist fans or Man United. I mean, if you watch someone go and take a corner, on match of the day or Sky on Man United, everyone gets a phone out and they're taking a picture of this person mm-hmm. come and take a corner and you're like, really? Can, can, like, can we not just 
Can we not just watch that person actually take the corner? Um, or if you want, record it and you'll be able to watch it again, like on TV. Um, also, I mean, it was it was great to watch Kylian Mbappe play. Like my son was obsessed. Dad, dad, get a picture of Mbappe. Get a picture of Mbappe. Get a picture of Haaland when he was playing again. But like, you want to be able to take youngsters to games. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we like, we've got the problem is, and this is my personal opinion. I know other people will think differently. If you've benefited from the ballot, you think it's brilliant. You think it's absolutely brilliant. If you've got three or four tickets to the set, seven or eight out of the ballot, you think it's great. If you if you haven't, there's some people who pay £37. Let me just clarify, for, because not yeah. sometimes I get this from people listening abroad who, who are, you know, because they don't go to games, don't mm. know the intricacies in the cast night ticketing system. This summer, Newcastle changed their process for home games where previously you logged on when tickets went on sale at 10am in the morning. And if you were lucky, you got a position in the queue Say that I mean towards the end of last season there was twenty five thousand people in this queue. But say, you know, Charlotte, you did this uh, regularly, where you would just log yes. on with your membership, uh, or if you knew a season ticket holder like me or Stephen, we could get you tickets. Season ticket holders now can't buy tickets for their mates, and the membership is now a completely random ballot. So you have over fifty thousand memberships sold, and then people think maybe eight seven to eight thousand tickets per game so like i'll, I'll come back and let mm. you continue i just want to clarify for yeah us. so basically you've got you should have roughly a one in six chance of getting a ticket some people seem to have got four or five of them some people seem to have got none so it, like it's a little bit it does seem to be a little bit random um, and if you are an international uh, supporter there are international memberships apparently yeah. available as well <laughs> um the thing about the thing about it is i suppose is, is where does this go where does this end so if we extend the east stand if we if we, if we do end up with a sixty thousand seat stadium um that's not going to be filled with an extra 5,000, 6,000 Newcastle United like fans. A lot of those seats are going to go to corporate people because that's an easy way to make money. I imagine that they'll build a layer of boxes like they used to have in the East Stand at one level and then they'll go up above it. Um, and there's got to be a certain amount of um, acceptance either that this is going to happen because like for FFP it has to happen or whatever. Um, for me, who sat in my seat for 30 odd years or whatever it'd probably be quite good enough someone went ah oh, we really need to build a box there mate so you can't sit there anymore can you go and sit in like this area over here um but like it is a problem they've got my my bigger concern though is is like where does this end because it links back to what you said before at the moment it's okay to say you're going to charge someone 300 quid for a corporate ticket because like we're in the champions league and the demand is what happens in two years time when maybe that demand starts to slightly filter down because maybe we're i don't want it to happen but maybe we're not quite achieving the fourth place finishes, maybe we're finishing fifth, maybe we're finishing sixth or whatever. What happens to those then? Because people might not be as keen to buy those seats then. What happens if we don't go off on the trajectory that we all want to go off, 90s style, where we're battling for the league title for season after season after season? Um, And where does that kind of lead to? I think that's where sort of being really mindful about whatever, however, how we expand the stadium, right? Because a lot of people are like building 80,000 seat a stadium and you'd fill it every week. Well, right now, maybe, yeah. But the club have to balance um, supply and demand. And, and really, for, from the club's perspective, it looks better if more people want to get in and can't get in. If more people are trying to, you know, find... Or or be, the pubs are full because people can't get in and everybody wants to go out and watch the game. Um, if we built an 80,000-seater stadium, like, I don't know how you would get 30,000 more seats on St. James's Park, but what does that look like it start and then and then you've got to talk think about how that filters down to commercial deals as well like um c- commercial partners aren't going to want to be have their name all over a block of seats that's got a few people in it or or, or no people in it so it's 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 a it's a it's a really like fine balance because i think that 
you know, there was something recently about uh, 65,000, expanding it to 65,000. And a lot of people have said it's not enough. It's not enough. Well, it's probably not enough right now. And maybe it isn't enough in the future either. But you do have to strike that balance. And I think it's interesting. I've just really quickly got to give you the answer to, to those questions that you pose, what other clubs do. It's so, so, for example, will the League Cup third round game in season 26, 27, if we are finished eighth the previous season, will it be full? Or what Manchester United do or have done in the past is say, if you have a season ticket, you have to buy the cup tickets. So, uh. Trust me, I, I take your points. Other clubs who've been doing this kind of thing longer than us have come up with the solutions. Well, there you go. Arsenal were, were by their standards rubbish for years and we all saw that the Emirates just wasn't full mm. those fans were paying for those tickets because if they didn't pay for those tickets mm. all of those fans knew that when inevitably they hoped and did, to be fair them did come true they're back competing for the Premier League title they just knew they wouldn't be able to get in so what the club have got now in terms of that supply and demand thing is great because it just plants the seed in mm. in fans heads don't give up your season ticket it might be 20 years before you get one again even if you have to below par seasons so everything that they do now is actually ensuring against those possibilities that you raise in future yeah like i think man united had a scheme where if you want a champions league ticket for one of the knockout ones you had to buy like certain carabao or fa yeah. cup yeah. tickets to make sure that you got into them and then they just included them in the season ticket and said you had to pay the extra price there, there, money, are, there are ways, there are ways around it i'm sure there are there's some very clever people i suppose probably what's more directly affecting people now which is a more difficult situation like in terms of ticketing is a they can't get a ticket now like mm. a lot of people can't get a ticket but even when they do get a ticket we've got the situation of where um well certainly where i sit in the east stand you've got long queues outside the ground at kickoff and it's like you know people are starting to become a bit uh, irritated by digital ticketing mm. but again you're going to put up with it because you don't want to give up your ticket because and it's not going anywhere they're not no, no. trialing digital yeah. ticketing it's like, not going to be removed yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like honestly the, i've never spent more money in St. james's park since the <laughs> the advent of digital ticketing because you've got to get there early you've yeah. got like i don't want to queue for half an hour to get into a game mm. so i'm gonna get into the game 45 minutes early and if I'm in 45 minutes early, when I'm there with, with Ben, we're just like, oh, fancy a pint. You know, like, yeah. it's <laughs> and everyone was in early, like the other night. Yeah. Like, oh, literally amazing. everybody was in early. So, yeah, it's, I suppose it's a, also the final bit I would say about it. Sorry, because I know I'm kind of monopolizing this bit, but um, it's the flip. It's You've got to get that balance right mm. between the corporate tourist supporter, which I get it, brings in more money to the club. I completely get it. But For what you don't want is an atmosphere which becomes the empty heart or the <laughs> Emirates. So, again, I think Man City have. I thought that the, I went. I've been to the. They had twice this season. I thought the atmosphere at both games from the home fans was better than I've seen in a long time. Albeit, um, they you know they won the treble and celebrated <laughs> the treble in one of the games that was at. I but, wish they'd really made a fuss of that. Yeah, exactly. but but I, but I think I just think there are solutions. And one of the interesting things that you raise now, technically, all of the points we're raising here probably could have been its own podcast by itself. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you raise about is how people consume football, particularly young people, tends to be through their mobile phone, whether they're at the match or not. And when we're talking about new fans or growing the fan base and how that impacts fans here, it, it you still don't see Man City fan, Man City shirts all over England, like I think Manchester City wanted to see. There's a lot of the stuff that I've read about Haaland from, from kind of a commercial aspect is football fans or kids these days consume individuals that sounds terrible consume support individuals consume. um rather than teams particularly ki- like kids below the age of like 15 it's like the, the, well that's the, how you get attacked you find a play you like yeah. oh, i love that player and it's always and, been that and, way. and paris Saint-Germain 
you see Paris Saint-Germain shirts all over Europe. Any any country you go to, you'll see Paris Saint-Germain shirts. And it's not it's not the team, it's the name on the back. Mm-hmm. It's Mbappe, it's Messi. Neymar. It's Neymar and all those guys. And, Paris, and, and PSG, I think, are trying to go in a different direction. It's not working because we battered them. But, um, and then, well, it might work, I don't know. But, <laughs> but ultimately, it's like, it might take 10 years for Newcastle to filter through to what they need to be. Whereas now, kids support Liverpool, Man United, um, mainly those two across the country. A little bit of Arsenal stuff from the Wenger era still knocking around. It's just it's going to be so hard for Newcastle to try and get all of those eyeballs in this country and abroad, again, being miles behind where they need to be, but then also with us or, or some aspects of Newcastle fans saying, I don't want this, I don't want this change. And it could be a different podcast by itself, so we'll not get into that right now. But it's, again, it's just a really interesting one for the future. I'm going to break now for part three of the show, couple more ads uh, back after these. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm going to jump straight in. As we're starting to think about what we've done and the future of the club and what that looks like both on and off pitch, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in, particularly as a look at, you know, when I was thinking about this podcast, I was looking at Man City, um, Man United, Chelsea to a degree, but but mostly Man City because that was the big name takeover. That was the big money takeover um, in, was it 2008? Um and um, and I think that there are a lot of parallels. I think one of the most telling things for me, or one of the most interesting things for me, was the the appointment of Dan Ashworth as as sporting director. Um, it was it was the first executive appointment that we made. Obviously, we had to wait ages for him because Brighton wouldn't let him go, which is again another telling thing that um, he's obviously really good at his job. All of his credentials, all of his. Um, CV is in that elite development it's all in you know he he was part of the England um, youth development he he made the England DNA sort of manifesto he then went to Brighton and Brighton have had incredible success bringing youth talent through developing them and either selling them on or then becoming you know stars at Brighton Um, I just think that's a really interesting um, appointment and, and, and indicative of where this ownership kind of want us to expand or develop. And I'm going to say the word develop loads because that's how they characterize it. But, um, um, uh, you know, we've, we've made some, some big signings or like big in this sphere signings over the last couple of years. We've, you saw Garan Kual come in. He was an Australian, he's an Australian national player. And um, he came in from a Danish side, I think. Did you come from Odense? No, he came from... Um, I'm a mixing yeah, he, yeah, he came from um, Australia, I think. I'll go back to my to my list. Um, uh, it goes straight out on loan. This is like... this is th- These are very, very um, intentional signings. These are very, very um, interesting signings to me. Jan Kuba, Minty, who came from... He came from Odense and he's gone off to Feyenoord. Um, these are like 90, 18, 19-year-old players who you've got to assume are... Like, firstly, aren't costing us very much money. Um, and are either being teed up to to join our first squad, um, first team, or are are being developed so that we can sell them on for a lot of money. And that's that's you know to, to tie into the kind of FFP um, side of things. That's that's an important another revenue stream, right, for us. 
but also um to to start developing the academy um manchester city's academy is has produced more professional footballers than any other premier league team it's now a massive campus that they built um so they they redesigned it around 1998 and then after the take after their takeover um it's been it's it's just to use um Stevens word like exploded it, it, they built a bigger they built a bigger um campus they are really really dedicated to youth players coming through their academy um and there's so many I feel like I'm trying to speak trying to cram a lot in here cuz I'm, I'm aware of the time and I know we've been talking for a long time but um they've produced players like Phil Foden through their academy. They've produced, and you're not always going to get a Phil Foden. There are 400 players at their academy. We probably won't know about 98% of them, but they'll go into different leagues. They'll make money out of, out of, out of selling those players on. And I, and I do think that that's going to have to be, um, and is a priority for, for this ownership going forward. Um, so I'll sort of leave it there, open it up. I think for every, um, 10 of those signings of like Minte, uh, Kual. You expect, you probably never hear about nine of them again, but right. you just need one of them to pay off for it to be worth it. And that is the model that we're obviously trying to follow. I think what was telling about um, about the other side of it, because we do obviously need a, a better academy and, and better facilities, but the fact that they did the work on the training ground and stuff, as is last year, we got that lovely tour with Shola in that video. Um, <laughs> God, that was a, the a wheel funny of old fortune. time. Um, yeah, I really want to know what that does. Um, but yeah, um, the, the the understanding of that, how important all that stuff is, even, even just for the existing squad and the kind of recuperation, but giving the players the best facilities to have a chance. And we're seeing players like Lewis Miley come through now. It's right. already, you're already seeing that. Whereas, I mean, I suppose the long staffs have come through the, the shit academy, you could, you could argue, <laughs> but um, so few and far between have, have been Newcastle players coming through. And it's partly down to the fact that the good ones would have just gone to Liverpool's academy or gone to Chelsea, Brighton, etc. Um, and now young players across the country, because we look, I'm sure the scouting network has already been expanded and there'll be players being picked up and saying, well, why don't you come and learn learn, right. your, learn your football at Newcastle? We haven't quite got the facilities yet, but we've got the future. Um, so all that stuff, we're starting now with the fact that we still with this, this campus idea. And we were talking about this last night when we did like, I don't understand why any football team needs like 19 pitches in their training ground. But <laughs> I suppose you've got if, 400 it, players. Yeah, if you've got every age group, it kind yeah. of makes sense. And yeah, we don't have that currently. So there is a lot of work to do in that respect. But it's, it's yeah, we've got the right people and they've, they've targeted the right people so early on to start that process because it has to work alongside everything else we're doing. Um, under Ashley, we tried to do something similar when we got Ben Toza in, we got uh, Rolando <laughs> out, like, we, but we did try and get people in who were English, who were young from other academies, who were seen as starlets, kind of in the lower leagues, and we brought them up. Now we've kind Mal of Ranger. gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now we've gone for Minte, who in Holland seems to be doing yeah. really, really well at final. Kual seems to be having a bit of a harder time. He didn't get in the most recent Australia squad. Mm-hmm. Um, he struggled at heart, but it's definitely the model they're going to have to go for because I think they've gone to Ireland and they've built up a partnership with, I think it's Derry City or maybe it's Lawn, um, and they've actually built up a direct link so that they can get people in who excel yeah. in Northern yeah. Ireland and then come and play football here if they do really well through the academy. We also pulled in Alex Murphy in the summer, who's a 19-year-old from Galway. And again, it's like he's a sort of centre-back, left-back, so you can't really see the the channel for that player into our first team, but that's potentially a money-making opportunity. I don't like to talk about these human beings as money-making opportunities, but <laughs> they probably are. But also on a kind of local level to talk about what you were talking about. How do you get the kids involved in Newcastle United? How do you engage them? Well, there are going to be lots of young um, boys and girls because um, the Manchester City Academy is for the women's team and the men's team as well. And we're now, um, our women's team is in League Three, but it's it's a full-time, it's, it's, um, it's full-time positions for all of the women playing and, and coaching. Um, 
how do you get them engaged? They're, they're going to want to play football and they're going to want to, like, if, if our academy, if we develop our academy and we develop something special here, they're going to want to stay or, the, or, or kids are going to want to come. Love it. I love the point uh, in relation to this podcast because when we go back to making decisions and, you know, are we, are we going to match Liverpool's £85 million match day revenue anytime soon? No chance. But can we have a more competitive academy than them in terms of youth development and picking players from markets, which again sounds terrible, but like, <laughs> um, like Northern Ireland, where maybe maybe Liverpool and Chelsea don't have as good a presence there. And, you know, it's just those little wins we can get as a club that help us make up the huge gap yeah. in, in resources that those above us have. So, yeah, I love it for that reason. I think as well, we've talked about all of these elements, the, 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 the football, the, f- the first team squad, the elite men's team is the focus, right? And where, how they do. But there are so many areas. There are so many like things that we need to do. Like if um, people can't see me, but it's almost like the, there's the nucleus, right? And that's the, that's the first men's team. And then there's all of this stuff around it that, that makes up a successful club and the commercial deal, the global brand awareness, the, the academy, the youth talent, like all of that stuff's important. And I think... If you look at where our players are going as well, like Minty and Cole, they've, they've gone off to the Eredivisie. Well, are we building links there? Are we trying to build um, relationships with with those with that league and, and things like that? I think yes, probably. And I think it's really interesting, and I'd be really interested to see how that sort of plays out and develops. Sai, you want to talk about the city? Yeah, speaking of uh, money, as, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to wrap up uh, talking about Christmas actually. Um, <laughs> But no, I'll get there, don't worry, I'll get there, I'll get there. So yeah, I think um, the, the, the last change I've observed about this club in the last two years is the is the impact that the football club now once again has on the, the entire city in terms of bars, restaurants, cafes, shops, uh, markets, etc. So if you go down the quayside on a Sunday morning, as I often do, sometimes I take the dog and look at the little kind of markets. And I, I used to just go for like the food stores and stuff because there's some brilliant uh, street food. But now we see all the little crafts and stuff. There's so much more Newcastle to it. All the kind of artwork is Newcastle United again, like pictures of the stadium, pictures of the city, the skyline with St. James's Park. Like that is a, that's a, it's a thing again, selling the football club as an independent business is a thing again. And bars and restaurants, yes, we've talked about it for the last couple of years, they're all busy again on a match day and they're all busy just generally um, because the club is successful. But it's, it's a two-way thing that's happening now where the windows are filled with adverts about come watch the match here murals um newcastle related kind of offers deals and yeah just pictures and stuff and, and cafes have got like you know little things and, and you start naming menu items after football players and all of these things it's that kind of they're now piggybacking on the success of the club it's not just a case of oh there's more people in the city on a match day we're a bit busy that's great it's actually like trying to build that relationship with with the football team again and then you yeah um getting to christmas the point i was going to make uh it's it's an easy win now uh, buying someone a Newcastle United related gift. Whereas two years ago, it's like, what have you bought me that for? That's ridiculous. Like I've got a I've got great a, thanks. I've got a forty one year old brother, and for years, like getting him a Christmas gift's been impossible. But I can get him Newcastle stuff again. He lives he lives down south. So, um, it, it there are more. If you go in Phoenix, for example, and it, when they're Christmas, it's probably already up. It's October. Let's be honest, it's probably already set up. Oh, there's the full thing downstairs. There's a now. full tune area again, which oh. there just hasn't been for years, and I just think. The, the, the city has embraced the football club again in a way that I, I can't remember since I was a child. And it's just, it's such a, such a lovely thing. And yeah, there'll be kids getting 
Christmas gifts that are related to Newcastle United and being genuinely buzzed about it instead of going, what's what's a Newcastle United? Who's that? What's it like? And it, talking about the players as well, stuff with like Bruno's face on, Isaac's face on, means something. And you know, they're not quite the 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 Haaland, uh, Ronaldo, Messi kind of level of obsession for for young kids. But there are players there that people are getting attached to and, and starting to get a real affinity for. And if you sell anything with those people's likeness on across the city, it's it's a buzz. And yeah, I think. Uh, Christmas is, is, is nice again for Newcastle. I, I think mean, um, I one guess. of the things that's probably a point on that is I'm sure Castor, when they had a shop up by the monument, actually advertised McLaren, Mercedes, Formula One gear out the window yeah. rather than <laughs> Newcastle United <laughs> in Newcastle, that's which you so think is a bit odd, but yeah. I think as, as well as you look to the future, the future for the commercial directors in, in Newcastle isn't just Newcastle City Centre being full of Newcastle United stuff. It's like kids in Reading getting a Bruno shirt. It's kids mm. in Saudi getting a Trippier shirt. Things like that, isn't it? Like w- this is the start, and and it's and it's lush because these are the people that we've grown up around, and and I love seeing all the kids all happy and excited about the football. But um, it it ha- it has to expand from here, doesn't it? It has to go to um, to. to people going into shops in London and being like, oh, do you not have a Newcastle strip? Like tourists, you know, that's where the, that's where the money's coming from. It is an interesting point, isn't it, about the transformation of the city. Uh, and it's not just Newcastle city centre on match days. It's, it's Durham, it's yeah. Yeah. Northumberland, North Tyneside, South Tyneside, Gateshead, which is great. But we are yet to see, you know, massive investment, I think anyway, from the owners into the city itself. We've seen some... Uh, um, but that that is going to be an interesting part of it and one of the things in order to achieve what we think they want to achieve in terms of expanding the the fan base and getting more people into the city from outside of the city to watch the team um, you know that that is going to be good for the city economically but also in terms of how the city develops Newcastle isn't a great tourist city there is tourism in Newcastle there is tourism in the northeast but but not compared to other parts of the country um, or the you know the whole, the whole of the United Kingdom. Newcastle is still a hard place to get to. Mm. It's a hard, it's a hard city to fly into. The the trains mm. are you know are expensive and you know what three three and a half hours from London. It's not it, it's not it's, the it, end of the it's world. It's under three sometimes. It's not the end of the world, but it's not super fast. Particularly if you've got to fly into a London airport from where you're flying from to get Newcastle. So that's going to be really interesting for me in the next few years is how that how to actually get here. It's one thing trying to sell the club on TV. It's another trying to sell the experience of going to the game as an international fan who might spend a few thousand as a, as a one-off for, 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 say, a two- or three-year period. Well, that's great, but if you've got to fly to, to Heathrow, then get from Heathrow to King's Cross, and then get from King's Cross here, that, that prohibits that journey a little bit in terms of what the club are trying to sell. So I, I think, I've no idea, but I think if I was the club, if I was trying to develop infrastructure as an owner, not the club, sorry, owners of the club who said they're going to invest in the area, one way you can help Newcastle United is make it easier to get here because as we have found out from build, our build ret- another terminal at the end yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> right. you, exactly. you used to be able to do Stansted to Newcastle on EasyJet and it was mm. cheap but we, we, we are experiencing right now I'm fl- flown to Milan flown to Dortmund both from Manchester, Manchester. you know that's it's hard to fly places mm. uh, from Newcastle that aren't kind of traditional tourist uh, not tourist um you know, summer holiday mm. destinations. But anyway, anyway. We digress. We digress. I think we'll leave it there. We've talked about lots of things. It could have been, each point could have been its own podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back with one of these free podcasts, uh, hopefully after we beat Crystal Palace. So 
Thanks for listening. Speak to you all then. Bye.